Hello and welcome to Written in Uncertainty, an Elder Scrolls podcast sat firmly in the grey maybe of Tamriel. My name is Aramithius, and this week we're taking a look at Shazar and the Divines, which is a book that has a look at Shazar, the figure that stands in for Lokan and Shaw and all the rest of it, within the Cyrodiilic faith. It's was, as far as I understand it, part of a group of texts that were introduced during the development of The Elder Scrolls III to present the figure of Lorcan. If you listen to some stuff that Michael Kirkbride said in the Selective's Lorecast, he wanted to introduce Lorcan to introduce some theological difference to the faiths of Tamriel, to make sure that not everywhere was copy-paste eight divines, so to speak, that it wasn't just the same set of divines with just different names, that there were some real genuine differences between the faiths. And this is one of those texts that's been written to establish that sort of difference, I think. There's also here one or two ideas that don't seem to get carried through to some of the other texts. There's some ideas here that I've not really seen followed up anywhere else, but we'll get to those as we go through. So, Shazar and the Divines is by Faustilius Junius, sub-curator of ancient theology and paleo-numerology at the Imperial Library. I'm not quite sure why paleo-numerology is particularly relevant here, to be honest, but it may have something to do with Shazar being the missing sibling, the ninth, and everything that that implies about how the world works, particularly if you look at how the Imperials think about the Elysians being obsessed with the number 8 and various other bits and pieces. The position that Shazar enjoys in Cyrodiilic worship is often misconstrued. He and a thousand other deities have sizable cults in the Imperial City. Shazar is especially venerated in the Clovian West, though he is called Shaw there as the West Kings are resolutely and religiously Nordic. Now this is interesting because it's one of the few texts again that picks up on the idea that there are tons of different cults within the Imperial City and within Cyrodiil in general. It implies that there's lots of different religions going around and that there's not one central unified pantheon of the eight or nine that absolutely everyone follows. It kind of gets expressed elsewhere as well if you look at the pocket guide to the empire in various ways i suppose because you've got these 16 acceptable blasphemies as well that are given nods to it's just that particular text has a syncretic and very accepting introduction to religious faith rather than just saying this is just the religion of the divines and that's it there is i think some faith that is a core to it um speaking with enrico dandolo on these notes i was making these on patreon um pointed out that there is an imperial cult that you've got the state tools of religion that are being used but it's not the be all, that's not the be all and end all it's something that functions as one among many if you look at how the romans treated religion it was a civic function 
and when they went to make war against other people, they would let the other gods of the city that they were going to conquer escape first, or if they wanted them to come over and become part of the Roman civic apparatus, so to speak. There are some texts out there that imply that the Imperials treat the text that way, most particularly reflections on cult worship, but this isn't quite the same thing. You've got definite hints of Nordic religion here, which you can see starting out at the beginning of this passage. The haziness of Shazar's relationship to the divines, he is often called their missing sibling, begins with Centalicia, the so-called slave queen of Cyrodiil, the founding figure of the original Cyrodiilic Empire. In the earliest Syro-Nordic stories of the Heartland, Shazar fought against the Aelids, the Heartland High Elves, on mankind's behalf. Then, for some unknown reason, he vanishes from the stage, presumably to help other humans elsewhere, and without his leadership, the Aelids conquer the humans and enslave them. The reference to the missing sibling is something that is tied quite closely to Lokan, the ninth figure of the Pantheons, which establishes Shazar again as the Lokan analogue here. And it's also kind of similar to how Lokan gets presented, or how Lokaj gets presented, let me correct myself there, in the Khajiiti myth being cursed to wander Nerni for many cycles. We've got Shazar fighting against the Aelids on mankind's behalf, and then vanishing from the stage. That feels quite similar to what Pelinal was doing, and also quite similar to how the Khajiit present Lokaj, the wandering everywhere eternally and having to go somewhere else and so on. That also ties in with a passage from Before the Ages of Man where Pelinal is referenced as one of the warlords that wanders around killing people, forming empires and then dissolving them again. It, that's also Hans the Fox and various other names but those figures are very, very obviously acting in Shazar's pattern, which Shazar exemplifies here by fighting against the Aelids quite explicitly. This slavery lasts for generations. The isolated humans eventually begin to venerate the pantheon of their masters, or at least assimilate so much of high elven religious practices into their native traditions that the two become indistinguishable. Now this is kind of interesting because it effectively wipes out the original Nedic religions, which we only really get hints of elsewhere in the Elder Scrolls Online, I think. The Craglorn questline goes into what the original Needs might have thought in isolation from the Aelids, and so we just got the impression here that the Cyrodiilic Needs and those that were enslaved just essentially had an entirely elvish pantheon, which meant that the original traditions would have to be completely wiped out, which, I don't know, it doesn't feel quite right to me that that's necessarily what would have happened, but it's possible, I suppose. In the first era, year 242, under the leadership of Alessia, her demigod lover, Morihouse Breath of Kine, and the infamous Pelinor Whitestrake, the Cyrodiilic humans revolt. When Skyrim lends its armies to the Slave Queen of the South, the revolution succeeds. 
the Aeliad hegemonies are quickly overthrown. Shortly thereafter, White Gold Tower is captured by Alessia's forces, and she promptly declares herself the first Empress of Cyrodiil. Part of the package meant that she had to become the High Priestess of Akatosh as well. Now there's a few things to pick up on here that I just want to flag. Some of them are incidental, and some of them are a little more important, I think. The title, Morahouse Breath of Kine, is interesting because you've got the mention of Kine as the Nordic version of things rather than Kinnereth and the merging that happens later. That's very much the emphasis of this and the introduction of Skyrim as part of the revolt as well is also part of that and that it's the Nordic elements that are supporting this revolt and potentially providing the fuel for it as well if you listen to this particular book that it's talking about Skyrim being a key to that particular revolt which if you read some of the histories it's they play a bit less of a part but you would expect that a text like this, which is written by one of the Cyrodiils, quite tellingly, for um, Faustilius Julius is definitely a Cyrodiilic name, that they wouldn't give the Nords any more credit than their due, but we have Skyrim being a key element here. And it's also one of the relatively few places as a result that we see uh, the Nords being part of this revolution. And Morahouse's title, Breath of Kine, is also something that's shared by Wolfarth, by the by, just to emphasise that Nordic connection a little bit more. Part of the package meant that she became the High Priestess of Akatosh as well. Now that line is one of the few places, if not the only place, where that one gets mentioned, I don't think. I don't understand why she would have to become the High Priestess of Akatosh. It might have something to do with how she brought the Aeliads on board, or some of the Adric-worshipping Aeliads on board as part of the rebellion, that she would have to assume some of their religious duties and make sure that their religion is supported, but it's not really clear, because you've not really got anywhere else referencing that she was definitely the High Priestess of Akatosh, or at least not in those terms. This text doesn't talk about Akatosh giving Centalicia a vision to go and conquer Cyrodiil and revolt and do all this, that and the other. It's just that Akatosh is tacked on at the end, which is a little weird. Which gets a little weirder as well when we get to this next paragraph. Akatosh was an Aldmeri god, and the Lesia's subjects were as yet unwilling to renounce their worship of the elven pantheon. She found herself in a very sensitive political situation. She needed to keep the Nords as her allies, but they were, at that time, fiercely opposed to any adoration of elven deities. On the other hand, she could not force her subjects to revert back to the Nordic pantheon for fear of another revolution. Therefore, concessions were made, and Empress Alessia instituted a new religion, the Eight Divines, an elegant, well-researched synthesis of both pantheons, Nordic and Aldmeri. Enrico Dandolo did have another point on why this was potentially the case, was that it's a merging of kingship and priesthood, that part of caring for your people is 
securing the favor of the gods as well and performing the rituals necessary to placate them or to make sure that they support you that i think plays out throughout the lighting of the dragon fires and so on later on but if there is a more religious role to the imperial throne of cyrodiil it's something that has atrophied over time we don't really see raman getting a particularly religious role when he comes back he gets if you believe the shoni etta he gets a upbringing from the priestesses of dibella and other imperial gods presumably as well but there's nothing about his station as such that implies that he's a religious figure he's potentially the offspring of alessia but we don't get any more than that Akatosh was an Aldmeri god, and Alessia's subjects were as yet unwilling to renounce their worship of the Elven pantheon. She found herself in a very sensitive political situation. She needed to keep the Nords as her allies, but they were at the time fiercely opposed to any adoration of Elven deities. On the other hand, she could not force her subjects to revert back to the Nordic pantheon for fear of another revolution. Therefore, concessions were made, and Empress Alessia instituted a new religion, the Eight Divines, an elegant, well-researched synthesis of both pantheons, Nordic and Aldmeri. And here's where we get the Eight Divines as a Cyrodiilic pantheon, as something that binds to the Imperial province particularly. But there are one or two things that crop up with this. The beginning particularly says... Akatosh was an Aldmeri god. That's not supported anywhere else, so far as I can find it. That the idea that Akatosh was a Moorish god, just no. Um, Auriel is generally seen as the Moorish Akatosh. You don't see any other books referring to Akatosh as an elven deity at all. It feels like there's something that's been glossed over maybe but i don't think it can be down to a simple name change somewhere because it's quite a definite you are having part of the elven faith as the head of the pantheon which in order for the politics to work means that akatosh does need to be an old mary god i honestly don't know how to resolve this really unless we think that the selectives, the Murakata selectives who danced on the tower um, and caused the Middle Dawn Dragon Break potentially split off part of Akatosh's aspects or part of Akatosh's Murish aspects, sorry, rather than separating out Oriel and Akatosh, which is the way that other texts tend to read it. But that's the only way that I can really explain it. It feels like a little bit of a fudge because that's not really the way it's presented elsewhere. Because even the texts that do talk about the selectives say that Akatosh is being treated as the same thing as Auriel. There is an equivalence between the two, but they have distinct names. So I don't know without dismissing this book's entire perspective on how the eight divines came about we can reconcile those two and we also get here the eight divines as one whole pantheon which again feels a little strange if we're to carry on with the notion of 1000 deities within the imperial city and having individual cults which 
the various books about the imperial faith seem to imply that these gods are all worshipped differently and by different people that if you worship one you don't necessarily worship them all then having them as part of the same pantheon feels a little weird to me but that that might simply be my own religious upbringing now I think about it because if you think back to the Greco-Roman models they were perfectly happy to acknowledge different gods and devote their lives to one or two or however many of the selection that there were without diminishing the importance of the others I suppose. Shazar as a result had to change. He could no longer be the bloodthirsty anti-Aldma warlord of old. He could not disappear altogether either, or the Nords would have withdrawn their support for her rule. In the end, he had become the spirit behind all human undertaking. Even though this was merely a thinly disguised, watered-down version of Shaw, it was good enough for the Nords. So it, it's basically that Shazar needs to stop being a genocidal maniac and killing everything. Shazar needs to stop being Pelinal at this point needs to simply be something that supports the empire and its endeavors and just general mannishness basically rather than anything else here as for why tiber septim has not attempted to revitalize shazar during his wars against the aldmeri dominion we can only speculate that at this time memories of the elysian order's follies the dragon break the war of righteousness the defeat at glenumbria moors would only damage his campaign for the imperial crown. Now, I don't honestly know how to take that. This is quite obviously written within Tiber's lifetime, and presumably around the similar sort of time as the first edition Pocket Guide to the Empire. So, it wouldn't be out of place for it to be kind of jingoistic and all-conquering and everything else that Shazar seems to embody here but I don't know what quite why it would damage the campaign for the Imperial Crown if he was going to start bringing back Shazar's worship particularly if it has ties to the Elysian Order it's I think this is possibly something to do with when this text was written that it was written in Morrowind and before Oblivion because the tenor of what the Elysian Order is and what Elysia is is quite different between those two games I feel that the expansion of Elysia as the Slave Queen and the Elysian Order as the domineering monastic theocratic thing that it became afterwards is much more distinct but when this was written in the real world those ideas weren't quite so settled but he does potentially also have an impact after his death that you have the emergence of Talos as a figure of worship among the Nords particularly you have the Nords kind of seizing on Talos in the fourth era as something that's Nordic and strong and mannish and all this. But Talos wasn't really Nordic. There's arguments about whether he was at Moran or a Breton, which I don't want to get into 
right now. They, I did do a podcast on Talos's background, so feel free to look that one up. It's the one on mantling. But Talos didn't really seem to go out of his way to sympathise with the Nords and be particularly Nordic as such. So it's a bit weird that the Nords would then start to cling to Talos as as a new figure, rather than simply reverting back to Shazar and Shor or Izmir. There's many and various Manish deities that the Nords seem to refer to. They, it's possible that Talos has become a new Shazar more generally as well, because um, you've got an awful lot of events in the Third Era that point to Mer being bad people. You can see some of the fans talk about it in those terms, that the Mer are always going to resort to a genocide in order to solve their problems. But you've got Jagartharn, who was half-elvish. You've got Manamarco, you've got Manakar Cameron, and you've got the Thalmor. You've got all these Murish threats emerging. Is Talos now just the form of the revitalized Shazar? as an increasingly anti-Murish figurehead that can kind of coalesce those um, sentiments and drive them forward. It's an interesting idea, and although I don't honestly know how much I credit Bethesda with thinking that much in depth with their religious reformation, but it's a nice consequence nonetheless. And just to wrap this all up, this book introduced some very interesting ideas, some of which are kind of pivotal to the Cyrodiilic identity, the way that the Eight Divines have emerged as a synthesis particularly, but there are some that seem to have been almost discarded, if you like, which I think is a shame. There's an awful lot in this book that seems to imply an awful lot about the theological underworkings of the Empire that I think could really stand to have been picked up at some point. It's a little disappointing, but that's the way it is. We'd still have this book to go by, and I personally put a fair amount of stock in it. I possibly shouldn't. That I, My liking for the concepts behind it may well explain the kind of leeway that I tend to give it, but that's me. What, what are you going to do? And just be aware of that as we go forward and look at things. But thank you ever so much for taking the time to listen to this podcast and go through this fantastic book with me. I do hope you've enjoyed it. Let me know what you think in the comments wherever you're listening or at the Written in Uncertainty website at writteninuncertainty.com. If you want to have a look at the notes that I make for these podcasts, feel free to become my patron at patreon.com forward slash writteninuncertainty and you will get all the notes that I make and access to my content early. Next week, we go back to looking at one of the questions from the Elder Scrolls series, asking, why worship a Daedra? Until then, this podcast remains a letter written in uncertainty. You've been listening to Written in Uncertainty, a podcast written and presented by Aramithius. The music for this podcast has been kindly provided by Jan Glimbotsky and Jeremy Sewell. You can find Jan's work on SoundCloud under Songs from the Lost Land, and Jeremy's Northern Diaries is available for purchase and on YouTube. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Rated M for Mature. Because we don't believe in scripted advertisements.
we're gonna do this raw. I'm regretting this decision. No, you're not. This is the DL Weekly Gaming News. There's nothing to regret here because it's your source for everything in the gaming world. Every week, we bring it to you unscripted, unfiltered. That's why it's rated M for mature, right, Brenna? Among many, many other reasons. I am one of your hosts, Jameson. And as he already said, I am Brenna, the other glorious part to this quality podcast. You can find us every week wherever you listen to your podcasts at DL Gaming News. And you can also find us on Instagram and Twitter if you want some gaming news in your social media feed every day at DL Gaming News. And uh, you can find us individually if you really, really, truly want to see our faces. I am at DL underscore Mother Goose. And I'm at DL Jameson. And this was an advertisement. Go fuck yourselves. Should introduce myself. Um, I'm Corin Black, a humble half demon. And folks around Baltimore call me the Devil's Runt. Here we go. Finally moving again. How do you feel about methamphetamines? You know, devil's blood don't make you a devil. Under the Shroud. Fantasy, noir, and horror from Baltimore's sin-soaked streets. Find creator Ian Humphrey on Twitter at fictionalian.com.